Good morning, church. I trust you all doing well. Shall we share a word of prayer and get right into the word? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning as we come before your holy word. We pray that your word will minister to us in simplicity and in clarity of speech. May your word come with accuracy and exactitude. May your word be ministered in truth and sincerity and in the fullness of the power of your spirit. May your word encourage us this morning. May your word edify us this morning. May your word sharpen us this morning. May your word help us to know you more and more. And may your word cause us to have mindsets which will culminate into the mind of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Part 91 of our series, please go with me to John 19, verse 38 to 42. We are finishing chapter 19. John chapter 19, verse 38 to 42. We are continuing our series on the book of John, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And today I'm ministering under the sub-theme, His Burial, His Burial. After this, so when you read a scripture, when it acts after this, try and find out the events by reading the previous scripture, previous verses of that passage. And John 19 is in context referring to the crucifixion of Christ. So after all that, when Jesus had given up the Spirit, after all this, Joseph of Arimathea, <clears throat> being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. 41. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. Amen. So right in the scripture, we see that Jesus is being buried and we see two prominent names mentioned here, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. This same um, account is found in Matthew chapter 28. Excuse me. Yeah, man, let, let me, let, give me one sec. Let me just check it. 
Now, it should be Matthew 27. Matthew chapter 27, verse 57 to 66. Matthew chapter 27, verse 57 to 56. And in Mark, it's in Mark chapter 15, verse 42 to 47. And in Luke, it's in Luke chapter 23, verse 50 to 56. So this account, which was recorded by John in chapter 19 of his book, verses 38 to 42, can also be found in all the other three Gospels. Matthew chapter 27, verse 57 to 66. Mark chapter 15, verse 42 to 47. Luke chapter 23, verse 50 to 56. Now, it's very important because when you read it, you get the full picture. So, for example, we see John just mentioned two people. He mentioned Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. But when you read, especially Matthew and Mark's accounts, it talked about the woman. It actually lets us know it was the woman that actually embalmed the body. So I believe the provider of the spices was Nicodemus. But I don't believe Nicodemus really embalmed the body of Jesus. I believe the spices were given to the woman who embalmed the body. So you see certain um, key facts are missing here. So sometimes when we read all the accounts, it helps us to flesh the story out very well. Now, in question, who is Joseph of Arimathea? Because throughout the Gospels, this might seem the very first time his name is being mentioned. Um, the Bible just said that he was a disciple of Jesus and he secretly, for the fear of the Jews, asked for the body of Jesus from Pilate. But when you read the four accounts, at least it gives you an idea of who Joseph was. We come to understand that he was from Arimathea, right? Um, he was a disciple of Jesus. So John made mention of that, that he was a disciple of Jesus. He followed Jesus. Now, in Matthew's account, Matthew said he was a rich man. That is why he had his tomb. He had bought his own. This tomb was for him. When he dies, he will be buried in the tomb. And what a selfless man. He just gave the tomb to Jesus to be buried in. It, it, it makes me see that he really believed in the Lordship of Christ. He didn't just see Christ as a good man, but he believed in the Lordship of Christ. That is why he was his disciple. You see, during Jesus' time, there were people who admired him because of the miracles. But when you become a disciple, that is deeper than just being an admirer. It, it, it speaks to a, a depth of commitment that the apostles carry. So he believed in the messiahship and he believed in the lordship of Christ. He believed that one day Christ was going to resurrect again. He gave his tomb. Now, when you read Mark's account, Mark actually told us that he's a prominent council member. So he, he was a man of renown. He had a position. 
he was high up in society. This was the guy who was Jesus' disciple. So Christianity is not just reserved for poor people. Okay? That this man was rich. He was a prominent councilman. And then Luke chapter 23, verse 50, focuses on his character qualities. He was a good and a just man. So you see, Luke focused on his character. Mark focused on his profession and his standing in society. Matthew focused on his economic status. And then John focused on his spiritual status. So you see, we get a very good picture of who Joseph of Arimathea was. The spiritual standing of Joseph was he was a disciple of Jesus. The economic standing, according to Matthew, was he was a rich man. The social standing or the, the um, stature he had in society was he was a prominent councilman and the character quality of this man was that he was a good and a just man. This disciple, the Bible say, for the fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate that he wants to take away the body so that he could bury the body. God bless Joseph of Arimathea. I pray that may God raise up many Joseph of Arimathea's people who are rich, of renown, yet they are good and just, and they believe in Christ and they are sold out for Christ. Because sometimes most rich people are crooks. Most rich people are morally bankrupt. But this is a man who I believe had allowed his work with Jesus to shape him to the point that it affected his character quality. That Luke could attest that he was a good and a just man. A just man meaning that he does everything proper. He does everything in a fitting order. That is who Joseph of Arimathea was. And then it talks to us about Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is an interesting um, person or personality. When you read John chapter 3, the Bible lets us know that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. He was a teacher of the law. So, you know, not every Pharisee was against Jesus. There were pockets of Pharisees or who were in the minority who supported Jesus. And one of them was Nicodemus. And from the way I read the story, it looked as if him following Jesus, he didn't let his colleagues know. Because if his colleagues knew that he followed Jesus, they wouldn't be happy with him. Read Matthew chapter 27's account. Matthew chapter 27 lets us know that after Jesus was buried, it wasn't just enough. They, the, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they went to go and say that, look, we read the Bible. It is said that this guy is going to wake up after three days. You have to secure the place. You know, and the Bible lets us know that the, the stone that covered the tomb, the stone that they rolled up over the tomb, was very heavy. That in itself is secure. 
But the Pharisees and the chief priests conspired that Pilate should release guards. And Pilate didn't even mind them. Because I think Pilate thought that, look, these guys, your request is very unjustified and unreasonable. The tomb has a heavy stone. There is no way a dead man can rise. And walk. So I think Pilate just looked at them like, wow, these men of the cloth, they, they, are, they are brutes indeed. So I believe that Nicodemus was in the circle of these people. And I believe that him following Christ, he didn't make it known. Because I think if he had made it known, he would, he would have lost his position. He would have lost his standing. He would have lost his influence. And, and those days, for you to go to Pilate's, you have to be a man of renown. No, nobody just goes to Pilate's. You can't just have an audience with Pilate's. So for you to have an audience with Pilate's, you have to have some social stature. And Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they had it. And they used their stature, they used their affluence for influence in the kingdom. Ladies and gentlemen, one thing we have to know is that when God gives us affluence, affluence means you are blessed, you are materially prosperous, uh, uh, God has blessed you, you are not in need, you, you, have, you have moved above the poverty margin line. Remember that your affluence is for influence for the kingdom of God. Thanks be to God that when these people had money, when these people had stature, they didn't misplace it. They used it for the kingdom's sake. And what was the kingdom's sake at hand here was to bury the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. The Bible lets us know that Nicodemus brought a mixture of mercy and aloes, about a hundred pounds. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. So it makes you know that Nicodemus was wealthy. He used his wealth for the kingdom. Ladies and gentlemen, when God bless us, it's good to travel. It's good to buy business class. It's good to go to the islands. It's good to go to the expensive places. It's good to buy nice things to wear. It's good to wear uh, nice fragrances. But at the end of it all, don't forget about the kingdom. With everything that we spend, do an inventory. How much do I spend towards the gospel? How much do I spend towards the gospel being promoted. You see, Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea, they teach us a very important lesson. They were affluent, yet they were so mindful of influence for the kingdom of God's sake. Then the Bible lets us know that they took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. So, that's how the, the Jews buried. They burned the um, corpse in strips of linen 
and then they embalm it. You see, not every body, uh, every dead body receives embalmments. Embalmments normally is for people who are very rich, those who have good standing in the faith, maybe prominent people. So somebody like Pilate, he's a prominent figure. So if he dies, his body will be embalmed. Not everybody received that. It was expensive. You had to have substance to be able to afford that kind of treatment. So they, they, they treated Jesus like he's important. That is the revelation behind it. Because those criminals, Jesus died with two criminals. They will just bury them. They will not even care whether they have a tomb or not. They will just bury them. And so was it. But, but for them to give Jesus that befitting burial, it, it really shows how valuable and how highly esteemed Jesus was to Nicodemus and to Joseph of Arimathea. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. I find this interesting. In the, in the epistles, Jesus is called the second Adam. It's a common name, or the last Adam. It is interesting to note that the fall of humankind, which, which happened through Adam and Eve, it happened in the garden. But for Jesus to rescue us and to deliver us from our sins, and to pay the penalty of death that you and I may not have to suffer that it was also in a garden. So the fall of mankind took place in a garden. The redemption of mankind also happened in a tomb near a garden. And the Bible lets us know that. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day and the preparation day at hand, like I told you last week, was the Passover. So now, understanding this, what is the essence of Christ's burial? Why did he have to be buried? You know, when you read the Bible, there are explicit sayings and implicit sayings. Now, what do I mean by explicit? It means it's just straightforward. It's direct. Sometimes you read the Bible, there are certain statements that are very direct statements. You can just understand it without thinking too much about it. It's explicit. But when we talk about implicit statements, we mean that the saying is implied or is indirect. So when it comes to like certain things, like Jesus, what he has done for us, it's very explicit. You just have to open the Bible, you will see it. But things like the barrier of Christ is implicit. It's indirect. But if you read the Bible, you will find the meaning behind the meaning. I hope we all understand. So now, with that said, which will be the crux of our message, I just want us to look at four things about the essence of Christ's burial. It was very important that he was delivered to his captors, he was crucified, he died, he was buried, and he resurrected. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
I want us to understand something about Paul's message before we go to the essence of his barrier. Verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3. For I deliver to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So the whole gospel is focused on these central points. Christ dying for our sins, him buried, and he arisen from the grave. That is the whole gospel. Without these focal points, we don't have a gospel to preach. So there, there, there is some importance attached to the burial of Christ. So the first thing I want us to know is that it fulfilled scripture. When you read Isaiah chapter 53 verse 9, Isaiah prophesied about it, that Christ was going to be buried. And, and Jesus being buried, it had to fulfill scriptures to make scriptures true and living. Are you understanding me? But one scripture I want us to read about Jesus is in Matthew 12, 40. He spoke about it too. So Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. The Pharisees came to Jesus and they asked Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Jesus answered them in verse 39 that they are evil and they are an adulterous generation. Adulterous meaning they are involved in idolatry. And he says that they are the people that seek for a sign and no sign will be given to them except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, what does it mean when Jesus said the sign of the prophet Jonah? Look at verse 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So scripture had to be fulfilled. So Jesus told them, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to tickle your ears. I'm not going to scratch where you itch in terms of wanting a sign. The only sign that will be showed to you will be the sign of the prophet Jonah. And what is the sign of the prophet Jonah? He was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Likewise, the Son of Man shall be in the earth for three days and three nights. So this was to fulfill scripture. The second thing that I want us to note is that burial proved he truly died. It means Jesus came in the flesh. It is not just about believing that Jesus is God. We also have to believe Jesus came in the flesh. Second John, Second John is just one chapter. Go with me to Second John. It's just one chapter. 
and I want us to see something. Verse 7. Second John 1, verse 7, one chapter. Verse 7 to 11. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Please be careful of deceivers. There are many deceivers. Many deceivers are preaching a different gospel. Be careful. They do not confess Jesus has come in, in the flesh. So that is one of the deceptive teachings you will hear. Scripture has prophesied. People will say that Jesus did not come in the flesh. It's a deception. The Bible has already told you that. And look at what the Bible says. Anybody who propagates this teaching, he is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we work for, that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of... So this is the doctrine of Christ. The doctrine of Christ is Jesus Christ came in the form of man. Though he was God, he taught it not robbery to be equal with God. He emptied himself, came on this earth, took on the form of man, and died on the cross and was buried and he resurrected. He came as a, he couldn't do that as God. He had to do that in the flesh. And the Bible is letting us know that if we don't abide in this doctrine and if we transgress, we don't have both the Father and the Son. There are some people who, who, who say, oh, I believe in God the Father, but I don't believe in the Son. You can't believe the Father and not believe the Son. The Bible is saying that if you don't believe in the doctrine of Christ, you don't have both the Father and both the Son. God the Father and God the Son, they are not at enmity. God the Father and God the Son, they are not at war. So you can't say that I love God, I believe in God, but I don't believe in Christ the Son. The Bible says that if you are like that, if you transgress and do not abide, in the doctrine of Christ, you don't have both God the Father, you profess to know and believe, and God the Son. Verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. You see, John is so strong about this because John was a first-hand witness of Jesus coming in the flesh and he knowing that he is the son of God. So burial proved truly that he came in the flesh. He truly died. He truly was crucified on the cross and he resurrected. It's the doctrine of Christ. That is why the burial is essential for every believer and to every believer. The third thing, 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18 to 20. For Christ also suffered once for sins. You see, that's the difference between Christ, our Passover lamp, and the Passover lamp under the Old Testament. That had to be sacrificed yearly. Christ, our Passover lamp, is once. And after him, there is no sacrifice for sins. 
For Christ also suffered once for our, our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waiting in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. So the essence of the burial of Christ was he came to set captivity captive. He said it in his opening message, Luke 4, 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel. He has anointed me to preach captivity, to preach liberty to the captives, to, to, to bring captivity captive. That is his mandate. And when Jesus was talking about that, he was not talking about just doing that on the earth. He was also talking about doing that under the earth. For when you read Ephesians chapter 4, the Bible lets us know that he went down to Hades. That's where he preached. So Christ had to be buried to be in Hades, to be under the earth, to set captivity captive. And when you read Ephesians chapter 4, the Bible says that when he ascended, when he set captivity captive, he sent forth gifts, and the gifts were in the form of ministry gifts, apostles, pastors, teachers, evangelists, and prophets, so that they will preach and strengthen the world on the doctrine of Christ. So Christ had to be buried to break the hold of Satan, because Satan is the one that keeps captives in prison. Jesus had to be buried to intercede for lost souls and preach to spirits that have been bound in prison who had not yet heard the gospel and that they were set free. One of the major reasons Christ had to be buried. He just didn't have to die, but he also had to be buried to go to hell and set captivity captive. The last thing that I want us to know is in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus made a little lower than the angels. In fact, that real definition there is a little lower than us. For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. Jesus was the taster. You know, during the during um, kingdom times, one of the professions was you were you could be called a king's taster. 
And why were you a king's taster? You are the one that served the wine before the wine is served to the king. You are the one that tastes the food before the food is served to the king. Because you are the scapegoat. So that in case anybody has poisoned the king, you will taste it on behalf of the king and die. And then we will know, oh, the drink is poisonous. If anybody has poisoned the food, you will taste the food on behalf of the king. So that when you die, it will send a message to the king that the food has been poisoned. You know, during those times, there was a lot of tension, a lot of allies, enemies. There were always fighting and things. So kings always had enemies. So one of the people you need were tasters. Well, Jesus became our taster. He saw death. It's poisonous. It has a sting. But he tasted it on our behalf so that we will not have to taste death. That is why he had to be buried. And the interesting thing is that when you read verse 14, the Bible lets us know the same scripture. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shed in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Jesus Christ tasted death on our behalf. He has broken the power of death. That is why when you are a Christian, when you die in the Lord, you just sleep. You are not dead. The icy hands of death doesn't lay hold on you when you are a believer. You are asleep. Why? Because Christ has tasted death on your behalf. He has taken the sting. He has taken the poison. He has taken everything that makes death fearful that when we die, we are in a seamless transition from the earth to heaven. That's why Apostle Paul says that for to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. All because of his burial. This is the reason why he had to be buried. There is an essence to his burial. There are some vital truths that we have to understand about Christ being buried. It's great we understand the truths behind his crucifixion. It's great that we understand the revelation that is unpacked through his death. But it's high time that we also understand the essence of his burial. So that all of us can walk free. All of us can walk not being afraid of death. That even if we should die, death will not harm us because someone has taken the sting of death on our behalf. That when we die today, we will just be in a seamless transition. We just sleep, but we are not dead. Though we will feel the pain, we will feel the absence, we will cry, we will mourn, but if the person is in Christ, he has just passed on to eternity. Amen. Jesus was buried. He was buried. It didn't end the story. Certain transactions took place on our behalf that has marked our liberty, that has marked our freedom, and that's why we can say scriptures like, in him we live, in him we move, and in him we have our being. Praise God. 
shall we pray? Father, I've delivered your word to your people. Thank you. We receive the revelation we have this morning. We walk in the revelation of this truth this morning. Thank you that your word is giving us a deeper understanding of your hearts and of who you are to us. We give you praise, O oh Lord. Thank you that we will have a rich worship experience because of what we have heard this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. How about you, Pastor Jessica? <laughs>